With all the news that is out there, there is a great temptation, you might even call it a threat, for this news to rule over our hearts. I want to give you an example of what I mean by this. Uh, we have heard recently, and we all know this already, that the government has estimated that there could potentially be up to 240,000 deaths from this virus. We've also heard news of, of a ship that for a while no one let dock in their ports. We've also heard of reports of cover-ups, of conspiracies, of people hiding things. So many, so much news that is all around us. I even saw news of some doctor that had apparently had a 100% success rate in curing their patients. And so we ask, how do we know that such news is ruling over us? How do we know that such news is ruling over our hearts? And we know that it's ruling over our hearts when the bad news causes us to be unrestful, to lack peace, to be fearful, or when the good news makes us feel restful, makes us feel at peace, and makes us feel safe. Instead, what we need more than anything is to have our hearts ruled by the news, the good news of our King and His kingdom. And we find this news in Isaiah 33. And I have divided this whole chapter that tells us about the good news of our king and his kingdom into two sections. In verses 1 through 16, we hear the good news of our saving king, how our king comes to save us. And then in verses 17 through 24, we hear the good news of the promises of our king to those who belong to him. This news of our saving king and his promises should rule our hearts today. This news should give us a deep sense of peace and rest and fearlessness in the midst of the world that we are living in. And our lives should be reoriented based on the reality of this king and his kingdom. And this is the best news in the world. Please join me as I read Isaiah 33. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, then you, then will betray, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. As the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leaped upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be a stability of our times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. 
Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has ceased, has seized the godless, who among us can dwell with consuming fire, who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he, who, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar off. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you count, cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an unmovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our refuge, our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. In verses 1 through 16, we hear the good news of our king and how he saves. And what I mean by saving is bringing his people into his kingdom. And he does this through his dealings with Judah. We see how our king saves through his dealings with Judah. So the question is, how does our king save? And we see here that our king saves by judging those who have oppressed his people. And we see this in verse 1. And you should notice, first of all, the first word there is a word, woe. And in some translations, it's ah. But the word means judgment is coming. And I have said that this word woe divides this whole section from chapters 20 through 35. And there are six woes that we see in this section. You should also notice something different about this woe than all the other woes that we've seen. This woe is not directed to Judah. This woe is directed to the Assyrians. They are the destroyers. They are the traitors. So in order for this woe to make any sense to us, we need to understand why the Assyrians are described as traitors and destroyers. Why is that an appropriate term for them? And so the former wicked king Ahaz had made a treaty with Assyria in 2 Kings 16.7. But that treaty did not do Judah any good. In fact, all it did was encourage the Assyrians' desire to conquer them even more. So Hezekiah, the present king, trusted in the Lord enough to break the treaty with Assyria. 
And in order to break the treaty with Assyria, he had to stop paying them to pacify them. And you can imagine that the Assyrians did not like that very much. And so they responded by invading Judah and conquering many of its cities. This is when Hezekiah's faith wavered. And he sought to pacify Assyria by bringing them gold and silver and many treasures. So how did the Assyrian king respond? Well, he accepted the gifts with no intention of doing anything but conquering them. And so he received the gifts and then let them know that he was going to come and conquer them and defeat them. This is the reason why Assyria is described as the traitor and the destroyer. And by the way, this is the normal way they lived. This is what characterized them. They were traitors at heart. They were destroyers at heart. And really, Assyria represents all who are destroyers and all who are traitors throughout all time. And this might be why the name Assyria is not mentioned here, although we know that these are the ones that are being referred to. So Assyria represents the godless fool and the selfish scoundrel that we looked at in chapter 32, verses 5 through 8 last week. Assyria represents all who are facing the judgment of God. Now, the fact that this woe is directed at Assyria is our first sign of a transition in this chapter. Something is different. You see, God has turned from chastising his people through the Assyrians, and now he is turning and judging his enemies, the Assyrians. God is now judging those whom he used to judge his people. They are the enemies of God, and now he has turned against them. What we need to learn about God's judgment here is that there is an inseparable connection between those who have rebelled against God on the one hand and those who are destroying and those who are betraying and those who are oppressing God's people. Those who rebel against God are those who oppress and rebel and betray. And they're the same people. God's judgment will therefore not only bring justice to the rebels who have rebelled against him, but also deliver his people from all oppression. We also learn that God is fully aware of all rebellion. What we see here is God is fully aware of those who rebel against him. They can't hide, they can't escape, they can't get away from God's judgment. We also learn that there's a day of reckoning where people who rebelled against God will be judged by him. It might not look like this will ever happen. It might not look like the oppressors will ever get justice. But God says the day is coming. We also see here that Assyria is an example of the way God works in general. Notice what they have done to others will come back as a boomerang on themselves. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. The destroyer is destroyed and the betrayer is betrayed. And we see this example portrayed very well in Sennacherib. Sennacherib returned home after being defeated at Jerusalem by God's mighty power. Right? But not long after arriving at his home, he was killed by his own sons. The betrayer was betrayed. The destroyer was destroyed. 
So how does God save? Well, we see here that God saves through faith in him. In verse 2, we see that Judah responds with saving faith by crying out to God to save them. Judah was looking for salvation in every place imaginable. You see, they attempted to find salvation from the might of the Egyptians, and that failed. They attempted to trust their wisdom by buying off Sennacherib, and that failed. And so far, what we see is all they have accomplished is that the Assyrians and their leader, Sennacherib, have come to the doorsteps of Jerusalem. They are doomed. They are helpless. And this shows us what all their wisdom and all their might and all their power could accomplish. But now, for the first time, we see that God's people are doing the right thing. They turn to God in saving faith. And we know that they do so based on their cry of faith to God in verse 2. So how do we see faith in this cry? How do we see faith in their cry out to God? Well, we see faith in that they make their request for God to save them based on God's grace. They do not cry out to God to save them based on their merit. They have nothing of which to base their salvation, their cry for God to save them on, other than God's grace. There's absolutely nothing to base their cry to God on other than his grace and his mercy and his favor. And what is important here is that they acknowledge it is that they cry out to God, acknowledging that they need God's grace. That's faith. We also see faith in their posture of waiting on God to save them. What it means to wait on God is that we are patient, are confidently patient, despite, despite the fact that we don't see the salvation of God at all around us. That's what it means to wait on God. And that's what faith looks like. Faith waits on God expectantly and confidently, even though we might not see any signs of God saving us around us. We see faith in the asking of God to be their arm and their salvation every morning. Every morning has the idea of every waking moment. From the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed, we need God's strong arm of salvation. The arm is an expression of God's power to save. You see, if I were to flex my muscles for you, it wouldn't mean a whole lot, would it? But when God flexes his muscles, when God bears his arm, he brings salvation. He is powerful to save. And so they're asking for God to bear his arm of salvation. This cry of faith in God to save is the same cry that all make who truly believe in God. Now, it might look, sound slightly different, but it's the same basic thoughts. All true believers confess that salvation depends on God's grace and not their merit. All believers wait on God even though they might not see the salvation of God. All believers acknowledge a continual need for God to save them. This is what faith looks like. So why is this response of faith the only right response to God? Because faith in God is the only way that acknowledges the truth of who God is, that he is the almighty God who alone can save us. Because faith in God is the only way to humbly acknowledge the truth that we are utterly dependent on God, and without God there is no hope of our salvation. 
because we need him and we are helpless without him. Faith expresses the truth that God is sufficient and that we are needy. Sometimes I think that I should not cry out to God, right? To save me because I'm already saved. We might think that way. Well, why would I cry out to God to save me today because I'm already saved? I'm already believing in him. Well, this is a failure to put together the pieces of the puzzle of God's salvation. Sometimes we try to put together the pieces, the theological pieces of our salvation, and we come up to the wrong conclusions. You see, instead, such crying for God to save us, as we see here, should characterize every one of us who believe in God today. This should characterize our lives. This should be what we, the very cry of our hearts every day and every morning. I need God to save me as much today as I did the very first day when I was saved. Not only that, but the Bible is filled with prayers of those who are asking for God to do what he has already told them that he's going to do for them. If you listen to Jesus' prayer, for instance, you will find that he prayed for what God had already promised to do. You see, otherwise he wouldn't pray for things such as, Dear Lord, please be near me. I mean, hasn't God already promised you'll never leave us nor forsake, forsake us? Of course he is going to be near me. But when we have not experienced fully what we know to be true, we pray for God to do it. Because we know he will. And that's what faith looks like. So this is a great prayer for us to memorize. Pray that God would save us daily. Cry out to God based on his mercy, and wait on him to bear his holy and mighty and powerful arm in saving us. You should ask yourself, do I live daily with this cry? Is this the cry of my heart daily when I get up and when I go to bed and throughout the day? And if not, ask God to make this the cry of your heart. Ask God to make the cry of your heart a cry of faith to him. So how does God save? By raising up as a mighty warrior against the enemies, in verses 3 through 4, of those who cry out to him in faith, that we saw in verse 2, and bringing them safely into the protection of his perfect kingdom. We see this in verses 5 through 6. You see, if God were to lift himself up, and what I mean by this, this is rise from his throne that he is sitting on, to act and to manifest himself in salvation. How do you think that the nations would respond to God? Sometimes we think that the nations would respond with a party, that the nations would rejoice, that we think the nations would come out on the streets and dance and rejoice because of the glorious beauty of all that God is. Rather, what we see here is what would actually happen. The nations would scatter in fear we see this in Revelation 6, 16, where the people run from God and cry for the rocks to fall on them. Rebellious, unbelieving sinners flee from the presence of the holy and mighty God. That's what they do. And this is exactly what happens here. When God gets up, the result is that his enemies are scattered. And he has such a great defeat that even what is left over are great spoils for his people. So complete is the defeat that there are spoils left behind. 
And you know this is depicted here as something that is not a big deal for God. All he has to do is get up. This is not really hard for God to do. The ease of his victory is really focused on in these verses. A small picture of what is being depicted here is what literally took place to the Assyrians. God scattered 185,000 through a plague that he brought upon them. And then what happened after that? Well, Judah plundered them. Judah plundered their camp. And this is a small picture of what is going to happen when God saves. You have to see in this the utter foolishness of unbelief. There's nothing more foolish than unbelief when we see God lifted up and exalted. After the victory, what does God do? Well, he does something amazing here, something glorious. He brings his people to the safety of his presence and his kingdom. And then he showers on them his kingly gifts. His gifts to Zion are his justice and righteous rule. And along with this comes abundance of salvation, stability, wisdom, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. These promises belong to God's people that he'll expound in verses 17 through 24. Notice one of the gifts emphasized here is the key to all the other gifts. And that gift is the fear of the Lord. What does it mean that the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure? Well, it means that in some sense, the fear of the Lord is the key to all the other treasures. That the key to the abundance of God's goodness is the fear of the Lord. So if this is the case, then what does it mean to fear the Lord? It appears to be a very important concept, and we can't obviously spend a lot of time here. But the fear of the Lord is similar to saying we are to believe in the Lord. We are to have faith in the Lord. It is to recognize God for who he is, and it is to recognize us for who we are, and to act appropriately in response to that. It means to acknowledge the awesome and holy character of our almighty God. You see, God is the other. God is unlike us. God is high and exalted and lifted up. In verses 13 through 16, what we'll get to in a, in a short while will help us understand what the fear of the Lord really is a little better. You would think that those who believe in God would no longer fear God, that they would fear God the least. But in reality, those who believe in God fear God the most accurately. We only see the fullness of God's character through the lens of the gospel. Only when we see the gospel do we see the fullness of God's array of his character. That is why those who believe in God fear God the most accurately. Psalm 130 verse 4 says this, But with you there is forgiveness. Why? So that you might be feared. Notice here that the fear of the Lord is a gift from God. It is not something we work up. It's not something we create within ourselves but is ultimately a gift from God. How does God save? God makes us aware of our need for him, and sometimes very painfully before he saves us in verses 7 through 12. What is causing such painful response that we see in this passage? 
Why is there such a painful response? Why are people crying? Why are the heroes crying in the streets where everyone can see them? Well, Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, has decided that he is going to conquer Jerusalem. He has decided that he is going to ignore the covenant that he made with God's people. That he is going to betray God's people. And after receiving the gift, he says, I am going to destroy Jerusalem and I am going to slaughter your people. And so Judah has been betrayed, they've been duped, and Assyria has broken their covenant. They are going to be destroyed. And so they are really doomed, and the language brings out how doomed they really are here. You see, when your brave warriors are in the streets crying for everyone to see, the only way that can happen is if you are truly doomed. You see, otherwise we will do anything to keep the morales of our people alive and strong, won't we? We will even cover up a little bit of what's going on so that people don't lose their morale. But here even the bravest warriors are in the middle of the streets weeping for all to see. Even the land mourns. And the good news is that even these events are designed by God, yes, even the wicked Assyrians that we see here in this passage, to show his people that they need him. God has raised up the wicked Assyrians for his good purpose. His good purpose is to bring them to their knees so that they would cry out to God as, they, as we see that they did in verse 2, God, be merciful to me and save me. This reminds us that every perceived obstacle in our lives, every enemy, no matter how great or small, even the coronavirus is for our good and is serving God's purposes. If God raised up the wicked barbarians, the Assyrians, for the good of God's people, then how much more even the lesser things like the virus does God use for his purposes, which is the good of his people? They are designed to cause us to look up to God. And that is always the best position for us to be in. It is always the best position for us to be on our knees before God, looking up to him. This is for our good. And this is the good news that none of these things can go beyond God's purpose for them. None of these things can outsmart God or go around his purposes. They're all serving God and his purposes. And we know this because all things are working together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. We should thank God for the, even the wicked enemies that serve his purpose of our good. There is nothing better than us being on our knees before God. Praise God, even though it can be so uncomfortable and so difficult. We don't like the trial. We don't like the difficulty. But we love the result that it brings into our lives of turning our eyes toward our King and our Savior. What then does God do at this time? What happens when we are brought to our knees and cry out to God to save us? Well, listen to the words here. Now I will arise. God has orchestrated things here perfectly. It is all fulfilling his plan. And now God says, I will arise from my throne. When the enemy appears to have the upper hand, God arises. When we've extended all our strength 
God arises. When we have turned our eyes to God and are waiting on him, God arises. Now is the time for God to save. Now does he bear his arm of salvation in delivering his people. And we see here he single-handedly burns his enemies like chaff in the fire of his wrath. Why at this time? Well, the language is very clear what God is doing. Notice the words here. Now I will arise. I will exalt myself. I will lift myself up. There's the building of these words that all say God is exalting himself. The purpose of this is to magnify God, to exalt who he is. This is why he does it this way. We all know that the light, we see the light the clearest in contrast to the darkness. When it appears to be the darkest, the light shines blindingly into our eyes and we see the light the clearest. It's not that the light is any brighter than it ever has been, but that we see it the clearest in contrast to the darkness around us. So what is the outcome? God gets the glory and we get the saving. What a deal. It doesn't get any better than this. A good prayer for us to pray is that God would arise and show us his glory through saving us. Arise, O Lord. Bear your arm of salvation. Show us your glory. We should pray that every day. How does God save us? Through forming in our hearts a right and proper fear of God. We see this in verses 13 through 16. One of the dead giveaways that we don't see God accurately, that we don't fear God the way we should, is that we ask the wrong questions. For instance, we ask, how could God judge anyone? Or, how could a loving God send anyone to hell for eternity? Well, what is our real biggest difficulty? Whatever it is reveals what we believe about God. And when that is our biggest difficulty about God, it reveals that we have an ignorance about God, that we don't understand Him fully. When we really see God, when we have a fear of God in our hearts, we have another question that we ask. We see a far greater problem. We ask, how could God save anyone? How could anyone stand in the presence of this holy God and not be consumed? Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire, with the everlasting burnings? And why do you ask this? Because you see the holiness of God and you recognize that you lack it. This would be the logical question for God's people to ask after seeing the blazing holiness of God's fiery judgment coming upon the Assyrians. Am I any better than the barbaric Assyrians that I should not be burned like chaff before God? Their answer is no, of course not. We are not better. God's people, when they see God and realize who they are, recognize God's character, they ask, there is nothing in me that separates me from the Assyrians who bear the burning, consuming fire of God. Trying to get close to God is like trying to get close to the sun. I read that the surface of the sun is more than 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And that the closest a NASA probe could come to it is four 
million miles away. That's a, a great big distance from the sun. God's holiness is like the raging inferno of the sun, and no, no sinner can come near him and survive. God is like the sun in that he exists in unapproachable light, according to 1 Timothy 6.16. But the problem is this. We need to be near this God. We need God's goodness more than anything. How can we possibly dwell with him the way we are? How is this possible? And this was really Israel's problem, wasn't it? That they faced over and over again by dwelling in nearness to God. We are told the answer to the dilemma in verse 15. You see, our character must conform to the character of God. If we are to ever dwell in the presence of God, we must share or reflect the character of God. This means we must practically conform to Him in speech and in action. And this has to be the way our lives really practically are lived out in reflection of God and his character if we are ever to dwell with God. This has to do with money, we see here, how we handle money, what we look at, and what we say with our mouths. So the question is, does this mean that our only hope is to merit salvation by our works? I mean, if this were the case, then none of us could ever be saved. We cannot merit salvation with God. But rather, what we need to understand, and this is the good news, that this character is the fruit of God's grace in our lives. You see, God is committed to transforming his people to reflect his character. And this character only comes through the grace of God in our lives. So this is a description of the believer who lives in repentance and faith. This is a description of a believer whom God is creating and, and forming into his image. Who is being sanctified to perfectly reflect the character of God and to dwell in the presence of God forever. There is no such thing as a believer whom God is not changing. And notice this, that we bear witness to the kingdom of God by reflecting his character. We bear witness that the kingdom of God is in our hearts by our character in conforming to his character. And such fellowship with God is only possible by his grace. The fear of God, we know we have the fear of God when we run to God rather than away from God. It is those who run away from God who do not know fully the fear of God. We run to God from God's wrath to God for safety. Those who have God's character will dwell on the heights with God. What it means there is that they will be saved. They will enjoy the, the delight of being in his kingdom and under his care. Ask God to give you a proper fear of him in your hearts. In 17 through 24, which we will look at very quickly here, we hear the good news of the promises of God that flow from, his king, from him and his kingdom towards his people that he is saving. This should cause us hope and joy in our God. Do you remember what God did when, right before Moses died? Remember God brought him up to a mountain and, and enabled him to look at the promises of God, at, at what God had promised to them, the land that God had promised to give to them? 
Well, I want you to think of yourself as going up on this mountain and overlooking the promises of God for yourself. I want you to think that you are overlooking the promises of God in these verses that God has promised to give to you. God promises that your eyes will see the king in all his beauty. In verse 17a, there's no greater beauty to behold than our king enthroned in his glory. And one day our eyes will see him, we will be in his presence, and that will be the consummation of our salvation. We will behold our magnificent king in his triumph. God promises that you will see the newly perfected earth in verse 17. God promises that all who are oppressed, who oppressed us, will be vanquished from out of our sight in verse 18 through 19. There'll be no one to terrorize, no one to oppress. It'll be kind of like those going, uh, kind of like someone who has gone through a very difficult situation, a situation that you never thought would pass. And before you know it, it has passed. And you look back at it as if it was a dream, as if it hardly even happened. And that will be what it will be like to be in God's kingdom when all the oppressors and all the enemies have passed away. God promises you complete stability, protection, and provision in verse 20 through 21. Jerusalem is, 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 represents where the presence of God dwells. That's the point here. Wherever the presence of God dwells, that is Jerusalem. That is his city. And a similar point is made with the tent here. The tent represents where God dwells. Remember the, the tabernacle that followed Israel throughout their, their wanderings in the desert. But here there's a difference. This represents a place where God dwells, but no longer is this tent moving. The pegs are solidly planted in the ground. There's no more moving. We have finally landed to, to the destination of where we were headed. Notice also the broad rivers. But this time there'll be no galley ships or majestic ships. You see, the rivers were a source of great joy and delight, a great benefit to the people. But at the same time, the rivers are where the, the, the ships would come and, and would, would attack and bring great damage and turmoil to, to the people. What we see here is that there are no ships that will terrorize God's people anymore, but only the great rivers that will bring abundance to God's people. God promises to be for you, the perfect government, through his sufficient reign in verse 22. The four titles here emphasize the total and complete sufficiency of our king. All of these, these titles represent what are true of just about every government, at least every stable government. But here it is all embodied in the one king. He is sufficient. He is all we need to rule over us. And he represents the perfect government. There is no need for checks and balances with him. He is the judge, he is the lawgiver, he is the king, and he will save us. Praise God that he is not only the judge, the lawgiver, and the king, but he's also the savior. God promises this great salvation for a weak and needy people like you, in verse 23. This is really strange language here, kind of a strange picture of God's people. They are pictured as a ship in disarray. They have loose rigging, the mast is unsecured. The sail is not properly secured. But notice that this is the ship that gets the spoil. This is the ship that enjoys the abundance of the prey. Even the lame get the prey. 
This is a reminder that our glorious future triumph over our enemies is not because of some mighty ship that we are, but because of our mighty Savior. This reminds us that we are not the reason why we enjoy the greatness of this kingdom and all its benefits. It's not because of our goodness, not our greatness, not our powerfulness, but the greatness and the powerfulness and the goodness of our King and His grace. Finally, God promises complete healing in verse 24. All the blessings of God come through the forgiveness of sins. And I want us to understand that because of our sin, we see all these curses around us, including sickness and death. But when our sins are dealt with through Jesus Christ, through his cross and the work he accomplished for us, when all our sins are dealt with and taken away, then eventually all the curses will also be taken away as well. And that will be true in Zion. When sin is re removed, there is no curse. And we long for that day, and we look forward to it in light of the promises of God that he has given to us. So there's a lot of news out there threatening to rule over our hearts. It can lead us to fear and discouragement and anger, or it can lead us to a false sense of security, to a false peace. We desperately need for the good news of the true king to rule over our hearts today. Christ dispels all fear and all discouragement and all anger. Christ leads you to the perfect and true security, to the true peace that is found in him. Every single blessing is found in Christ Jesus, and there is not one blessing, one true blessing that is found outside of him. And only when we are ruled by this king, only when we are living in that peace and security and joy, can we be a true witness to this world. The world needs to see the kingdom of God through us. We need to speak of this kingdom and we need to live as people of this kingdom with our lives. And if this message is to truly rule over us, we need to feed our faith on the word of God. The only way to live by faith is to continue to look at the word of God. We have to be so careful. I want to warn you against being consumed with the messages of this world. I want to warn you against being consumed with the news of this world. We must keep the truths of the gospel right before our eyes continuously. And there are so many resources to look at, but especially go to the word of God during this time. One way for this message to rule over our lives is to ask God to show us his glory. So that's what I want you to, to encourage you to do. Ask God, show me your glory, and then take his word and read it and see the glory of God so that we can live as kingdom people with the great hope of the promises of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you that you are king and that you are on the throne and that you reign supreme over all things. Lord, we thank you that your purposes are being fulfilled, that nothing can prohibit or stop your purposes. Lord, I thank you for your salvation that you have brought. Lord, I thank you that you have given us a son, your son. Lord, I thank you that you have gone to the cross that you have defeated our enemies and that you have brought us such a great salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would cause us 
this week to rejoice in your great salvation. Cause us to have the peace that comes through your son, Jesus. Cause us to have the joy that comes through your kingdom and your kingly reign. God, I pray that we would be a witness to the world through our words and through our actions and through our conduct. Lord, I pray that you continually remind us of your great kingdom and and our great king. And Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see your glory. That is what we want more than anything. We want to see you, Jesus, in your glory. And thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And thank you for the promises that await us of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.